are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today, we have two very special cartoonists, Jason Katzenstein, who draws for The New Yorker and Current Affairs, and Ellie Valley, who made splashes when he drew Megan McCain. First of all, thank you so much for both of you coming. Jason, what got you started as a political cartoonist? And then we'll, we'll go to Ellie after. Great. I mean, I guess I am a political cartoonist. Well, I also think about it as like the lowest of the lowest of forms of cartooning in that like some things that I've learned to prize about the form of cartooning is that words and images each say just enough that it only works to combine the things together. Whereas political cartoons have a history of like people, like politicians having their name on their shirt and everything being labeled, like abstract concepts being literalized. And so I feel ambivalent about the form. I have some political cartoonists I love, like Paul Conrad, for instance. As far as thinking about myself as a political cartoonist, I guess that it's something that I sort of fell into also. My background is the first professional work I did was for that magazine. I was the intern there and then I started writing and drawing a bit for them freelance. And then I started working for The New Yorker and it was only when I started working for The New Yorker more in the context of drawing some of the debates in 2016 or doing some more topical work that I sort of fell into this world of, I guess what we call political cartooning. And so hopefully my discomfort with what it means to be a political cartoonist is something that I can use to make work that I can stand behind. Although I'm not sure, you know, I, I feel a lot of uncertainty in the role. And that's part of the reason why, Ellie, I wanted you to be here because I really admire your work. And also, we have a mutual friend, uh, Anthony Smith, who called you the only subversive cartoonist left. No, no, no. He, he said you were the only subversive artist we have left. That's um, very sweet. Um, <laughs> so, Ellie, I got to know your work when you started doing cartoons about Israel and the American Jewish diaspora and all that. And as a Jewish person, like what motivated you to do your satire? Well, first I, I should just reiterate my own sort of displeasure with the format of political cartooning, at least the way it sort of evolved, maybe, you know, post like, I don't know. Um, I don't know how far back we can say it became sort of hack work, but it, it, it in general, 80s, 90s, aughts, it was kind of like retreading. I'm talking about the, the general single panel stuff. And obviously there were always exceptions, really notable exceptions, but like the single panel, especially the, the labeled stuff, I felt oh. that it had sort of run its course. Uh, the label stuff, um, Ben Garrison is the worst. Like he, Like you can have like somebody who has like a McDonald's uniform on and he'll still label him McDonald's employee. Yeah, I, I think with him, it's it's almost, it achieves a surreal quality that sort of elevates it, even though he's, you know, horribly uh, racist and all right and Q supporting and all that shit. Just from the level of, you know, art, um, taking the cliche and hackneyed gimmicks and elevating them through overuse maybe. But anyway, so, uh, you know, I was drawing cartoons in college and, and, and it was exhausting and I felt that I had sort of like become spent from it and I wasn't really interested in doing it anymore, partly because it was really hard to find work as a cartoonist as it was, you know, then and now. Then, you know, living my life, at some point, I think, you know, in the late aughts, started writing sort of op-eds related to Jewish issues. And then like, I, 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 started, I started drawing. I hadn't drawn in a while and I started drawing again and I just realized that the impact of visual image for me is so much more powerful than yet another op-ed which lists, you know, three or four major points, you know, introduction, conclusion, et cetera, in order, you know, to get your political idea across, especially within the Jewish community, the taboo, the third rail of speaking bluntly about Israel. 
and within the Jewish community in terms of intracommunal tensions, speaking bluntly about diaspora Jews and the way diaspora Jews have been denigrated for a century by Zionists, the visual format was really exhilarating and liberating. So I, and so that's what sort of got me into it again. But I, I will say that to this day, I do have a lot of ideas that whenever they strike me as similar to typical editorial cartoons of the ones I was disparaging of the 80s, 90s, etc., I'm like, no, I can't do that. Because, and sometimes I will say, sometimes my stuff does border on that and, that, and I'm not happy when it does, because there's no point in doing it if you're going to repeat the things that, to me, drove the entire genre into a rut. What I noticed is that with the 80s and 90s, there's a window of what's allowable to criticize. For example, you'll never get any cartoons criticizing the Iraq War or whatever. The first year, the Gulf first war, like the incubators. And you only get like support of bipartisanship and maybe some mild social issues. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say I do think like Tony Auth in the Philadelphia Inquirer, and <laughs> I'm not sure who else, but was against the first Iraq war as well. Um, so they, they did exist, but probably Tom Tolles too when he was in Buffalo, but I, I, I'm not sure I need to check that. So they did exist, but yeah, I agree that it was like, there's a lot of rah-rah, free Kuwait kind of uh, bullshit at the time. One thing I'm quite interested in is, so Paul Conrad was the LA Times cartoonist through the early 90s. And first of all, the dude could draw. And so I remember like looking at compilations of his work and being very enthralled and finding him, even though he is certainly guilty like everyone else of the labeling people on their shirt. There's one cartoon of his that I did not know existed and I can't even find in a Google search, but it is, I'm looking it up because there's an LA Times article from the late 80s, uh, Conrad cartoon sparks call by Israeli envoy for restrictions against Times reporter. And they wanted to revoke press credentials for the LA Times bureau chief in Jerusalem because Paul Conrad drew this cartoon and it's an Israeli soldier standing over a Palestinian corpse and saying, I'm willing to talk peace, but there aren't any Palestinians left to talk peace with. Which I think it's pretty incredible that that ran in the Los Angeles Times. And one thing that I'm thinking about a lot is not, you know, why are there so many like kind of centrist sort of like boring bipartisan political cartoons going for like the easy mark because um, of course, there always has been and always will be that. But I do wonder about the capacity of cartoons to get away with stuff that you might not be able to write in print or the other side of that coin when they can't do that, obviously, because this was, you know, there was outrage over this cartoon. Do you remember when it was, what year? 88. Oh, 88. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. I, 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 I'm too young to remember 88. <laughs> Oliphant got in some trouble too. He's quite the character. But his portrayals of Sharon back in the 80s and probably into the 90s got a lot of vitriol thrown at him and, you know, demands for his censorship, etc. Have you guys had a chance to look some of the samples of the French Revolution porn? The porn. <laughs> the porn in the French Revolution was used to show that they were living a decadent life. As, it wasn't as much as like, oh, let me jerk off to it. I'm sure some yeah, people I mean, jerk off to it. <laughs> sorry if I'm making you awkward, Jason. Uh, yeah, this is harassment. Yeah, now, I do. Uh, I want to know: Is it all Marie Antoinette? All, all the women are supposed to be Marie Antoinette in these pictures? Yeah. Okay. Wow. Um, crazy with it, huh? Yeah. Well, yeah but I mean, it, it, it was all elite. Every any, saying anything bad about her was illegal. So they just went like, if if I'm gonna die, why not just um do porn? <laughs> Did anybody get killed for drawing any of these? I don't know that. But I mean, they, they were basically shaming her, saying that by being a sexually active woman, she's morally um, corrupt, basically, right? I mean, is yeah. that the idea? Okay. Yeah. I'm um, surprised France, you know, they, even back then, that they would, uh, that would be the assumption. Well, it was more like they're engaging in so much debauchery in Versailles while we're starving, kind of, let them eat. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking for food in these pictures, too. Like, uh, Good. Uh, I, I can give you more. Um, oh, really? Okay. No, it's it's really interesting. It reminds me of uh, you know Tijuana Bibles. Oh yeah, yeah. What are Tijuana Bibles? I actually Wait, do, don't know. Do about you, that. Basically, it was uh, cartoonists taking famous Disney characters and the like, and just putting them in total, um, absolute debauchery and pornography, 
not necessarily political. I'm sure some of them were political. I think it was largely just, I don't know if people were getting off to it or if it was just like, just going ape with the form. Here's Dagwood. Ooh. <laughs> you see? There is also certainly a rich tradition of this on the internet today. So from the French Revolution through Tijuana Bibles to the corner of like a weird ad on some website. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, yesterday I was watching the Netflix series Bolivar, and they were showing this affair, and I was not 100% sure it really happened. So I googled Simone Bolivar affair, and then like it took me to Pornhub where there were these people who were like, just like Simone Bolivar, and I'm like, oh, God. So there's literally a porn for everything. Yeah, here's they have Gandhi um, getting busy. <laughs> well, <laughs> this is not entirely false, though. You know <laughs> that Gandhi next to naked virgins to show that how he was beyond temptation? Uh, no, I don't think I knew that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he would, and I bet you he would also fondle naked virgins to show that he didn't get an erection or something like that. So I actually don't. Yeah, he's a weird guy. Okay, maybe those were documentary. <laughs> I do think that there is something interesting about also the Marie Antoinette stuff where like, you know, this is a medium where you use one image for maximal impact, usually to try to puncture power. And the way you do that is by distorting people, showing them to be ridiculous, et cetera, et cetera. But like, it is as Ellie, as you brought up, like using sexism as the cudgel against a different kind of authority is an interesting like, oh, yeah, and it also reminds me a little bit of, you know, like Sarah Palin porn parodies, you know? Because back then, pre-photography, pre-video, you know, video, porn was in drawings, in drawing form at the time. And so this, these were, they were just, you know, doing parodies of what obviously was much more visceral because it was during the revolution. <laughs> but, it, you know, it's, it's using the genre of porn, which at the time was uh, drawn porn. What makes something a political cartoon as opposed to just a drawing. One could easily argue that all cartoons are political, um, mm -hmm. you know, because they're either maintaining or subverting our notions of what is normal and acceptable in, in society. So, I mean, obviously there are limits to that, but you, know, you, you can interpret anything. But in terms of overtly political, I don't know. I, I was just wondering, it's a philosophical question. There's no wrong and right in it. Jason did bring up a good point in that it's harder to censor drawings as opposed to words. So you can draw things that normally you can't describe with words. Let's say there's a crackdown during the Red Scare. You can put a lot of things in drawing that you they wouldn't let you get away with, with in words. Yeah, but I think on, on the other hand, like some of my art, uh, I've gotten in trouble for because it is viscerally repellent, for instance, and describing those kind of things in two sentences, would you can be more sort of uh, subtle about it. So I think, it, like Jason mentioned earlier, it goes both ways that, that it can give you more freedom, but it can also be more constraining sometimes too. Because the power of image is so visceral, I already said visceral, but it can lead to you know greater pushback. Can you talk about your controversy with Megan McCain? Because you drew one image and she singled you out as being anti-Semitic, even though you're Jewish and she's not. And then her father's like friends with Pastor Hay, who wants to, who said Hitler was an agent of God or whatever. Then he said unto me, prophesy unto these bones, and said unto them, O you dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And he spoke to them, and they stood, and they became an exceeding great army, meaning they physically came to life. Now how is God going to bring them back to the land? The answer is fishers and hunters. The answer is given in Jeremiah 16, verse 15 and following. God says in Jeremiah 16, Behold, I will bring them, the Jewish people, again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. That would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Behold, I will send for many fishers, and after will I send for many hunters. And they, the hunters, shall hunt them. That will be the Jews. From every mountain and from every hill and from out of the holes of the rocks. If that doesn't describe what Hitler did in the Holocaust, you can't see that. So think about this. I will send fishers. And I will send Hunter. A fisher is someone who entices you with a bait. How many of you know who Theodore Herschel was? How many of you don't have a clue who he was? Woo! Sweet God. Theodore Herschel is the father of Zionism. He was a Jew that at the turn of the 19th century said, 
This land is our land. God wants us to live there. So he went to the Jews of Europe and said, I want you to come and join me in the land of Israel. So few went. Herzl went into Prussia. Those who came founded Israel. Those who did not went through the hell of the Holocaust. Then God sent a hunter. A hunter is someone who comes with a gun and he forces you. Hitler was a hunter. And the Bible says, Jeremiah writing, they shall hunt them from every mountain and from every hill out of the holes of the rocks, meaning there's no place to hide. And that will be offensive to some people. Well, dear heart, be offended. I didn't write it. Jeremiah wrote it. It was the truth, and it is the truth. How did it happen? Because God allowed it to happen. Why did it happen? Because God says, my top priority for the Jewish people is to get them to come back to the land of Israel. Today, Israel is back in the land, and they are at Ezekiel 37 and 8. They're physically alive, but they're not spiritually alive. Now, how is God going to cause the Jewish people to come spiritually alive and say, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is God? So, you want to talk about it? Yeah, she actually, she mentioned that recently, just a couple of days ago, saying, you know, it was one of the most extreme, exp- I thought maybe she learn from that and wouldn't want to be, uh, you know, bringing it up again. But basically, it was a year ago, March, so a year and a few months ago. On The View, she was literally in tears saying that she's close with Joe and Hadassah Lieberman and Ilan Omar is, you know, is an imminent threat to the Jewish community of America. And she was perpetuating these distortions and lies pushed forward by right-wing, even centrist, pro-Israel advocates and demagogues. And so I found it offensive that she was, you know, weeping Jewish tears, essentially saying that her proximity to Jews through friendship means that she's an authority on what is and what isn't a threat in the midst of our white supremacist nightmare when Ilhan Omar is one of the few solid voices protesting and working against this dystopia. And so I drew Megan McCain in Jew face, essentially, with a Matis Yahoo CD. That's a deep cut. I don't know. I'm um, trying to remember what else, you know, like pouring matzo ball soup into a bowl, like without <laughs> water, you know, and um, a Yentl DVD, putting a star on her chest. You know, I didn't want to go too far with the Holocaust imagery, but I did want her to be appropriating Jewish trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, the tears sort of, you know, reminded me, and I have her crying in the comic as well. And, you know, she's saying how, I, I need to get the actual text, but, you know, how dare that yeah, I, I got your image. It's um, with Megan McCain. She's saying the thing she said about the Holy Land, that refugee girl wants to exterminate us Jews. <laughs> yeah. So this is one of the examples of when a comic is eclipsed by reality, because soon after I posted it, she said it's the most anti-Semitic thing she's ever seen. So basically, I am making fun of her appropriation of Jewish history, memory and trauma, you know, that a Gentile you know, Christian woman is doing. And then for that, I am called anti-Semitic, that my, my mockery of a Christian's appropriation of Jewish culture is anti-Semitic. That's, that's sort of like the through the looking glass. Um, and, and, and let's not forget all the ways like her father helped arm actual Nazis in Ukraine and the Azov Battalion. Like, I mean, there's none of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I wasn't going on, on on that level of deep cut, but yeah, that's that's also a nice little um, extra flourish to her whole uh, appropriation of Judaism. It is, I think, irresponsible of you to continue to draw cartoons that come true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. The Modest Yahoo CD really was uh, was just the chef's kiss of genius in that one. Thank you. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I re-upped it recently when she, when she re-upped the whole thing. And I got some replies saying, oh, Matis Yahoo, I never noticed that. I'm like, oh, that's funny. Because I, I really like how Matis Yahoo is sort of like this, um, almost a litmus test of how deep you personally go into the weeds of Jewish culture that's thrown into this comic. Because, you know, he was a figure in the, I guess, early aughts. And to two Matis Yahoo concerts. When you talk about getting them in hot water for drawing images that are powerful and draw people's ire, well, that is true. I also think that you're one of the rare working cartoonists who actually continues to move people, move people toward anger, move people toward any sort of action. And there are very few cartoons that I see like just being passed around. It is, I think, the dream of the cartoonist to make work that is that gets 
the kinds of responses that your work gets. I mean, I, like you are a polemicist and I try to be too. And I know a lot of cartoonists, you know, have a point of view and try to make work that reflects that, but not a lot of cartoonists get to piss off powerful people. And so part of that is, is your chops, you know, it's like the work is really beautiful to look at and arresting and, and, but I don't, I don't, you know, I'm trying to work through this out loud. Um, but it's just like, yeah, you, you really have something that people respond to. And I wonder if that's something that you think about consciously, or it's just always been this element of you making work that people like have feelings about it. <laughs> Sorry, when you say respond to, are you saying the haters or, or just in general? Well, the haters, of course, are loud and um, they're going to hate. But I think the reason that the haters hate is because other people are really moved by this work and feel less alone by this okay, work. Thank or, like, you. Feel something is like elucidated that they've been trying to explain and you distill it into um, an affecting image. Thanks. I really appreciate that because, um, you know, sometimes people say, you know, what, what is the point of your comics? You know, you know, are you trying to affect change and, you know, how are they going to affect change? And, you know, what I have said is that they're meant to be sort of um, cathartic for, they're, they're not meant to convince the other side, they're meant to be cathartic for our side, so to speak, you know, or, and or just to, like what you said very eloquently, just to articulate something that is just like, that I've been wrestling with, and I need to get it out. And so I appreciate that, that you understand that and um, that giving nourishment to the left is in itself its own justification, I feel, for, for these drawings. But the larger question, I'm sorry, was whether it's conscious, was, was that it? Whether, whether, no, so it's, it's not like, I'm not trying to do things that are um, either, you know, pissing off certain people or whatever. I'm just um, articulating often anger and sense of injustice, but I'm not thinking about reception. I'm just, you know, getting out my um, sort of um, the knot from the inside. You know? Can you um, quickly talk about Diaspora Boy? Sure. The, the, like, what made you start that character, and who is he for people who are not familiar? It's funny. Um, I wrote a lot about it in Diaspora Boy, the book, but you which, know, the, which we'll provide a link below in the oh, description cool. box. Okay. But it's funny. The one thing I forgot to mention in the book, which, which you know, I, I really worked laboriously on remembering, excavating all the initial impetuses, impeti, um behind all these comics. But the one thing I forgot about Diaspora Boy, the actual comic itself, was. It was, as I wrote in the book, you know, inspired by all this, you know, Jewish ideological polemics that I'd grown up on. And specifically at the time, various Jewish blogs at the time were perpetuating this myth of Israeli superiority and strength and diaspora weakness. But it was also inspired by Alpha Yehoshua, A.B. Yehoshua, an Israeli writer, actually a writer I've long admired or up until that point. And, you know, it's weird, you know, someone can be a great writer and have just awful politics. A.B. Yoshua is known for being, you know, on the peace side of things, but his, you know, within Israel, you know, it's, the spectrum is a bit narrow. But anyway, his, his views on diaspora Jews were just repugnant, and he has said such awful things. And sometime before the comic came out, he, I think it was at a speech to some Jewish organization, just saying that we're all going to wither and die, and the only place where there's a Jewish future is Israel. And it was such a controversy. I think it was the American Jewish committee or Congress, I don't know, uh, they put out an entire uh, like self-published book, you know, like, um, I don't know, maybe it was like a, a 75 pages or something, just like filled with essays responding to him. And for some reason, when I was putting together to Astro Boy, I was, you know, finding all these different memories of what it inspired. But that particular sort of pivot point I had omitted. And so I'm, I'm glad to be able to mention it now. It's, it was just really, it was so bizarre and so extreme that um, I wanted to sort of articulate, I wanted to satirize this dogma that I'd grown up on, whether in, um, you know, Jewish summer camp or um, synagogue life or Hebrew school, the idea that, you know, it's like destruction of the exile, destruction of Galut, the, you know, the diaspora. It's an idea that's fundamental to Zionist ideology and thought when it emerged. And Zionists like to say now when I criticize it, oh, you're, you're, you're mocking stuff that we, that we um, already moved beyond in the 50s after Israel was established. And that's just BS, because uh, to this day, you can see Israel ideal. I mean, literally to this day, I mean, you know, within, you know, every week, practically, you'll see some outlandish uh, remark or publication or just assumption that is the subtext to something that 
someone like Netanyahu or even Gantz, you know, the supposed opposition will say in Israel about the viability of living outside of Israel. I mean, the view of Zionist ideologues and Zionists, etc., of Jews who don't live in Israel and don't see Israel as their homeland is atrocious. And so the satire takes their views a little bit further. I know there are a group of extremely religious Orthodox Jews who oppose the state of Israel because they think that man can't create it. And so it has nothing to do with how religious of a Jew that person is. But often people like Netanyahu try to portray them as a-religious and the people who are rejecting their Judaism as a religion, right? Well, yeah, I mean, Netanyahu has literally said that the left doesn't know what it means. They've forgotten what it means to be Jewish. I mean, he has... Oh, Marx. Yeah, that was a, like in a hot mic moment. He has uh, really merged Jewish far-right nationalism with sort of the heart of his view of Judaism. And there's not much room for divergences. You can see his son is literally all right, you know, talking about Soros conspiracies and allying with actual Nazis. And so it's really hard to satirize that kind of um, off the brink mentality. Okay, so Jason, all from your New Yorker cartoons seem incredibly tame. Why? (laughs) I think it's a house style. It's not for lack of I don't feel that I'm holding back in New Yorker cartoons, but I do feel like the kind of work that the New Yorker wants to publish and also the kind of jokes that I want to tell like within the pages of the New Yorker are subtle and and understated. And I do have anger sometimes and try and puncture power. And every once in a while, I'll pitch one to the New Yorker that I'll be surprised that they'll take. And to say that something has a house style I feel I don't want to like descend into this idea of some kind of perceived neutrality or apoliticism because of course like affecting a stance of neutrality is taking a position but also the New Yorker cartoons for me feel more like during this pandemic for instance like I tried to make work about the pandemic but I just don't feel much like I'm the person who should be the hero of this story right now. And I realized that early on, but I did get some nice messages a few months ago from people saying like, hey, I wanted to laugh and your cartoons have been funny. And so thank you. And that's kind of more what I see my role as in New Yorker cartoons. If I'm doing more topical ones, then of course, I mean, I think about my audience as well, right? Like the New Yorker readers, exactly like Ali was saying that he's making work that will serve as a bomb, uh, B-A-L-M, right, for the, for the left. Um, or a B-O-M-B. <laughs> um, which, which I really appreciate. Like, I do feel that catharsis when I look at your work and I think about New Yorker readers and I think like, how can I needle people just a little bit? Because subtlety is the name of the game too. And so, I mean, rather than overtly say like, this is like healthcare is a human right, which I believe, and I will scream from the rooftops in my personal life and online. I pitched a New Yorker cartoon that they bought, which is two people walk, like this was, this was in the early, early days of the pandemic and people were walking around in hazmat suits and everything was going to shit around them. And yes, the drawing was sort of subtle and understated, but one was saying to the other, now more than ever, what we need is small tweaks to the existing healthcare system. And so the whole the whole gag was also this understated and muted reaction to what is a heightened emergency, obviously. And so I think that sometimes speaking quietly can be subversive. I hope that speaking quietly can be subversive. That said, so much that's going on every day requires less subtlety and cartoons are a great medium to be loud in. And so... You know, I have an Instagram account where I publish New Yorker cartoons, but I also publish cartoons that you would never see in the New Yorker. And sometimes people get mad at me about those. Uh, (laughs) Instagram? Instagram, People get mad at me for like almost every day on Twitter for not following neocon opinions. So, um, yeah. I've been called uh, genocide. So anytime you write an article that it doesn't follow national security orthodoxy, they're going to get mad at you. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and, and for what it's worth, like, I also published a cartoon on the New Yorker's site with, like, two goldfish when John Bolton was, like, frothing at the mouth over a potential war way back in January, a million years ago. Is he ever not frothing at the mouth over yeah, war? Um, he continues to froth, but one of the fish is saying to the other, like, admittedly, I have a memory span of five seconds, but I think America should start a war. And again, it's like... You know, it's the droll, muted style, but like it's still my point of view and and it's hopefully gonna be read by people who would belong to that neocon consensus. Also, that's the other thing I think about who's reading this and how might I move that person. That was in the New Yorker? That was on the New Yorker site, yeah. Is there a process that's still the same as it used to be with Mankoff? I don't know if it changed since him or do people still have to like line up and, you know, sit in their antechamber and is it still like old school like that uh it's both that but also by email so emma Allen, yeah some things that she's changed are that you can pitch daily cartoons now and those are the ones that are more topical so those are online only but those are the ones where they let me write about jeffrey epstein and american imperialism so that's pretty cool i think that's interesting is it because they're not as um the the, the gatekeeping is is less stringent online than it is in print and they don't want to offend people in print as much? I think it's honestly more that there are more cartoons competing for fewer spots in print, whereas online, you kind of just need to wake up or the night before and do something that's topical. So there's just like, there are fewer candidates. And so sometimes maybe the higher pitched opinions are like the less subtle point of view can, can really shine. Um, can I slightly switch gears and ask you guys about methodology? Since there's, of course, we have Adobe Illustrator and all that fancy stuff, how do you do it? Do you do it on paper and then transfer it to the computer or do you draw straight on computer? Like, what do you guys do? I work on an iPad and I use the program Procreate and I use just the computer pencil and it's really expedited my process because I can draw things and then immediately email them to people and it's really helped me do a lot of live drawing work which is really fun. I can watch something and draw it while it's happening. I've live drawn the Oscars for The New Yorker and I, I've live drawn every debate of this primary cycle for current affairs and I've lost my goddamn mind doing it. Yeah, that sounds, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, 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 Jason got my attention when he live drew Hamilton. It was so well done. Hamilton said, what does he say? The nation needs another war? Oh, I forget what he said. Can you, can you send us that question? Was that recent? I, I missed it. Yeah, was that based that on a, the Disney, the yeah. television? Yeah. Um, Jason drew a card and it was like so topical. And I'm like, oh my God, we haven't changed a bit. I, I still haven't seen Hamilton. And so... Um, I haven't either. I, I didn't see this. Oh, yeah. I, I tried eight minutes. I tried eight minutes. Oh, I got through like uh, four minutes, actually. I'm like, okay. Why? Yeah. Okay. This was the one that really caught my attention. I wish there was a war. Yeah. <laughs> And, and I, I should say, because people have told me this, that this is supposed to indicate that he grows throughout the show, that he begins by saying, I don't know. I, it, it's really weird that this is a thing that is popular. <laughs> I found the songs to be very bad, um, which I think the rule number one in a musical is they should good songs. But, um, um, that's the thing. I, I hear people saying that they don't like, you know, the musical, but they like the songs. And I don't. The songs I, are terrible. Yeah, I don't, I, I, I'm not a musical expert, so I don't want to weigh in too strongly, but they don't really reverberate with me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, and the impetus for this more is, like, at Current Affairs, like, the editor, Nathan Robinson, will put himself through torture. Like, he read Pete Buttigieg's whole book. I read like, that book, too, as a service to humanity because <laughs> of Hillary slaves. Um, <laughs> because what? Hillary wrote about how she had slaves and no one read her book in 2016. That's right. So That's I right. made sure to read yeah. this book. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I, I, I really admire Know Your Enemy, the podcast uh, with Sam and Matt, where they do deep dives. They like really engage with uh, conservative work. And I, I guess that every once in a while, like, I feel like it's probably a good thing to put yourself through a tiny amount of hell and just see what's popular or what a broad consensus about a thing like actually looks like. And so I watched 
three hours of Hamilton. Um, oh, I admire you for that. Like, I, it took me three tries and I got through eight minutes. It's kind of, I mean, I was spacing out thinking like, who, like, oh, Steve Mnuchin is treasury secretary now, right? This is like, like, this is like a musical that like loves <laughs> like, process and like the treasury secretary. I don't know. It's really Obama America was a hell of a drug because like, it's so much about like doing your homework and how, and how interesting it is to watch somebody who like did his homework and like wrote the federal <laughs> papers. Yeah. yeah. Wait, what is Mnuchin's connection? Was he, was he oh. one of the bankrollers? No, no, Alexander oh. Hamilton was the Treasury Secretary. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So it's like having, 200 years from now, it's like having Steve Mnuchin, the musical. Right, 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 right. Which I thought it was because, fun. you know, he, he, he was a Hollywood uh, producer prior to, you know, his current gig, or it was one of his pursuits, right? Yeah, I, I was So I thought maybe he, he produced Hamilton too. I was like, oh. Okay. Well, you know about Steve Bannon's connection with Seinfeld and how he bought, like, Seinfeld and now he gets royalties every time Seinfeld rearranges our Yes, run. yes, I heard about that. Yeah, yeah. It's great um, poetry there. Did you draw a cartoon about Jerry Seinfeld and his like crazy cosplaying with uh, the IDF or was that somebody else? I never drew that. Okay, it was I, somebody else. But yeah. I might have mocked it, but never, uh, never drawing. Okay, because I remember about a year ago, uh, Jerry Seinfeld was doing this cosplaying. Like it was like a. It was a terror camp. It's a yeah. terrorist camp, essentially, an IDF sort of like summer camp training thing for American Jews to go and feel it's a really diaspora boy kind of thing. Cause it makes them feel all, you know, strong via, you know, holding uh, assault rifles. You can do that in America. There's mm -hmm. no one's going to stop you from holding as many assault rifles as you want. Yeah, it's, it's sickening. Um, I did not but, know. Yeah, you, you can Google it. Yeah, yeah. Pictures, yeah. It, it, it was like him cosplaying an IDF soldier, and he seemed all proud. And I'm like, that's disgusting. Yeah. Uh, I think I find out about Jerry Seinfeld makes him worse. Just like every bit of info is like, you know, about the 17 year old he dated when he was in his mid 30s, right? Yeah. It's his wife now, is it not? Or I, oh, let's. Is she your wife? I thought they wife? got married. I thought they got Ew. married. I, I don't know. She was still in high school when they met. And he was close to 40, I think, at least. Yeah, those pictures are... Uh, Gross. They, they go around every so often. I love the show. Like, that was so formative for me. And it sucks that the person is so... I think it's the guy who did Curb Your Enthusiasm. I think he's a good writer. So I think he carried the show. Hmm. What's that like guy's him. name? Larry David. Larry David, yeah. Yes. Larry David, wasn't he was a Buddha judge campaign. Whoa, judge. I did not know that. <sighs> I thought he was a Bernie guy. He is. He was literally a Bernie guy. Like, I mean, yeah, yeah. Like Hollywood celebrities are so limited in their politics on like they they're just like really really easily influenced on anything that I notice. Except for Susan Sarandon, she's awesome. <laughs> You're gonna mention something about Obama. Oh, it was that was about Hamilton, just about how it feels really like an Obama era musical and so it's interesting to watch it in Trump's America. That's something that I'm sure Corey Robin like would be a genius about. Um, I, I think yeah I think just because it's a musical like that's about homework like it's about how good Hamilton is at doing homework that I think is a very Obama America cultural touchstone when the thing that made America such a wonderful place is how you know how qualified its uh, leaders are. Yeah. Well, for me, it's the fact that they're even praising these genocidal maniacs as though they're decent people that is, that's worth praising. And Making them people of color, which like profoundly like strange thing where it's like there is a real problem of like unbearable whiteness of theater, but the making the solution to make David Diggs play Thomas Jefferson is like, it feels really up to make Thomas Jefferson a black man. I agree. I mean, they could have done something about the union movement or anything where there's more people of color and in some way. Right. Yeah. There are stories that you can tell that are interesting and compelling about real Americans, about people of color, like who are essential to the history of this country and that don't kind of just like celebrate Alexander Hamilton for three hours. Exactly. It's just like, it, it's uh, the just, yeah, it, it's very disturbing. 
Though Isha has explicitly forbade me from working on it, my song and rap-through musical about 1917 has persisted. Only through your support of our Substack can you prevent me from releasing it as the next episode. I'm serious. There's a line about being all in for Stalin. And another, Lenin, the OG without the melanin whose pointy beard the bourgeoisie mightily feared. So go to historically.substack.com to get newsletters, podcasts, and to prevent this epic spectacle of cringe. So back in the 1930s, every union has its own newspaper. These are all cartoons made by the unions, and it's by Jason Burke. And you can kind of see, like, capitalism just kind of made all these, like, cartoons kind of deteriorate. (laughs) What do you mean deteriorate? As in, you don't get, okay, if every union had its own, own, own newspaper, oh, I see. you had a lot more cartoonists who could do a lot more edgy stuff like this. And every union also had its own radio station. So no one was relying on the New York Times, except if you were like a bougie business owner mm. for your news. And you can see like we've lost a lot of, like there's a lot of talent that won't get published now because of that. Right, right. I see. Okay. I think you meant the... Uh... The genre itself, it was, you know, the labeling and stuff that capitalism destroyed that. Like, no, that, that seems to be still around. <laughs> no, no, it's just that, that a lot of these newspapers got bought out. And, right, right, and, right. Like, and unions destroyed. So. Yeah. These are, yeah, these are some, some nice drawings. Yeah, the charcoal, or I don't know if that's what they're using. but the, Yeah, these came out in 1935. And oh, really? And there's a lot about the Great Depression. Like, there's uh, I, The thing I love is that it has everything. Like they talk about. Uh, so um, I don't know which ch- chapter you're on. I'm looking at Upton Sinclair riding a donkey that is headed toward fascism. That's the Democratic. Yes. Okay. Okay. Ah, the Democrats are are headed toward fascism, and Upton Sinclair is trying to go toward socialism. Uh, yes. So he's he's trying to work with Democrats, but they're going toward fascism, and he's trying to still be a socialist and like keep it real yes i like it it's what i feel like is every day today (laughs) yeah you could like put a lot of people on that donkey couldn't you over the years bernie will be on that donkey too and it's the same thing um the donkeys yeah but he's going the other way right yeah the donkey's going the other way right oh i see Uh, okay but he's on the donkey and so try as he might to go toward socialism got it got it i got it sorry i was i was uh speaking as i looked at the stuff we literally have the handshake meme right here right the communists and the socialist workers and fascism yeah they're fighting fascism i like that yeah i like that too i mean it's it's great that 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 image is so enduring and it's such a meme right now, that strong handshake. Okay, if you go to the folder that it's called Capitalist Subanato because that was the name of the artist. So a capitalist painting a picture of the Soviet Union, there's this like Russian worker who's holding a hammer and they're actually making it look like he's holding a knife. And that's a lot like Russiagate today. (laughs) (laughs) True. Yeah, I see that. That's cool. Yeah. So yeah, the really sad part is that nothing has changed in the past 30 in the past 80 to 100 years <laughs> what if ben garrison was of the 1930s i think i think that you'd probably find more ben garrisons just because the history of the medium is also the history of like othering people visually and so there's there like it's a really racist inheritance that definitely you know creeps into the to the right-wing work of today but also and like Ellie, you know, geniusly subverts this all the time by using the iconography that was like deployed in an anti-Semitic way and inverting it. But it is something that I think about when I look at old cartoons all the time. Like, you know, what what is the name for the the anti-Semitic face rendering? What's it called? like? You know what I'm talking about? No. I say it with like in a lot of Nazi um, cartoons where the Jewish man has these like. Little eyes and big nose. Yeah, yeah. I don't, know, always, I don't like, know the name to... for it, but yeah. yeah. I mean, there's that. There's of course, like, yeah, just soup, like I don't know. I mean, like because this medium is about distorting things and simplifying things toward like 
you know, espousing a point of view that's always necessarily going to include a group of people and exclude other people and make people enemies and make people allies. It's like that leads to so much racism so quickly. And I think it's a thing that cartoons to this day continue to get a pass on. There's this artist, Gary Varvel. He's a political cartoonist. I, another way I like to torture myself is go to like townhall.com and just take a look at what the political cartoons are of the week. And conservative political cartoonists are like really on one. And Gary Varvel drew this cartoon. It was like a Thanksgiving cartoon. And there was a racist drawing of, I, I assume a Mexican man and it's a Thanksgiving, a white Thanksgiving family. And they're saying, or, or, or just, just some Latin ex immigrant like rendering. And the patriarch of the family is saying like, thanks to Obama's immigration laws, like we're gonna have more people of, at Thanksgiving this year or something, which is, man, I gotta find this cartoon. But the opposite were, of the point of our mythology about Thanksgiving. Right. Yeah, it's insane that it was Thanksgiving, but there was the rare bit of actual, like, what the f***, dude, like, this is an incredibly racist and offensive cartoon. And so he changed it. But the way he changed it was he took the mustache off of the man. And I think <laughs> that all the time. I, I just think about, like, how much cartoonists are missing the point of the tools that they use and the visual iconography that they're deploying and the arguments that they're making visually. I want to find this cartoon because he's like, yeah, oh, you must be upset about the mustache. So after it was published, he took the criticism to heart and changed the mustache or removed it. Yes. Really? Wow. Where was it published? In Town Hall? It was first published in the Indianapolis Star. Well, while he's finding it, he, Ali, um, so what do you, you never answered the question about the mediums. Like, oh, that's you... right. I didn't, we got distracted. So yeah, I used to do brush and ink on Bristol board. And then uh, a few years ago, I moved on changed when I finally took the leap to uh, Cintiq, which is a drawing tablet, like an iPad, but less mobile, sort of a desktop thing. W um, Wacom, right? Oh, yeah, Wacom. Wacom, I don't know, is it pronounced Wacom? I don't even know. I don't I never know. speak it. I, okay. um, but yeah, so, no, I don't know myself, but I was saying COVID the other day, and someone's like, no, it's COVID. So <laughs> Anyway, it's, Wacom has done these styluses for years, and then at some point they came out with a stylus where you draw on the actual screen. I was always sort of not really amenable to where you're drawing in a separate surface and then have to look at where, you know, your brush stylus is going. But one, uh -huh. once it became on the screen and I used this, you know, um, stylus on the screen, like the Apple Pencil, it made it something where I, I would take the leap, basically. So I took the leap and um, so I do everything via the it's Cintiq and, and uh, the software is uh, Clip Studio Paint, which is an app specifically for comic artists and manga artists, but it's just a great illustration program in general. So I don't even use it for, you know, making panels and stuff. I just use it for the illustration. And there's a guy named Frendon, Ray Frendon. He makes really good brushes, you know, and they, so he, he sells these brushes. And I, I basically use one brush, one size, and rely entirely on the um, pressure, pressure sensitivity, which is amazing. Is it a Sorry? digital brush? Yeah, you, I mean, the Cintiq is, is digital, so it's, it's a stylus. These, these nibs, uh, I rarely even change the nibs. So it works really, I'm happy with it. You know, I mean, I'm still, the time, I hoped it would save me like 50% of time. It maybe saves me um, 15, 20% because, you know, once certain avenues are made easier, sometimes we create new avenues for ourselves. And so, and also perfectionism plays a role sometimes or always. And so it's not quite as quicker as I like, but what I do like about it is the frustration of having to wait for ink to dry before putting a layer of white over black and vice versa is non-existent. I mean, there's frustration for other reasons, but I find myself yelling at my computer much less than I would used to yell at my drawing board. That's good. Um, so Jason, I just saw this cartoon and basically a Mexican person is like a white man with them. Like, is that like how he had been always drawing Mexican people? I don't know. And I guess upon revisiting the cartoon, Ellie, I put it in the... In the yeah, I just saw it. I just clicked it. It's pretty yeah, funny. I, yeah, I guess that also it, this is just any like brown person, like any scary immigrant family from anywhere, I think is what he intended to do. I mean, I guess it says in, in the report that it's a Hispanic family. Certainly that is what the racist caricature looks like. But like taking out the mustache doesn't change what's about this cartoon, nor does it change the impressive 
hypocrisy of making this about Thanksgiving. Oh, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, the original Thanksgiving was kind of genocidal. <laughs> no, for sure. That's why, I, that's why I said the mythology of Thanksgiving. I think it's interesting he has a red hat. At first I thought it was Trump era. I'm like, why is a MAGA guy coming in? But then I saw 2014. So. Oh, uh, I'm really mad that the right wing stole the color red from us because everyone knows the red. Like, if you've listened to the red flag song, like you say, the people's flag is the deepest red because of the martyred dead. Like, all the worker unions, who, workers who, who were shot and killed. So I can't, I'm really sad that the right wing took the color red from us. It's just hats, though. I don't, yeah, no, but also red state. They, um, I, you know, if Democrats ended up with red and Republicans blue, Democrats would never hear the end of it in terms of red baiting. I know, but now, like, right, like, they should have made Republicans orange, pink, any other color so that we can still have, the socialists could still have the red. Yeah. Because what about have, poop brown? Like, very, very poop colored. For, color. for who? For Republicans? Both. Both. Brown shirts. So. For a one-party war state. Mm-hmm. Um, just like a, just like a poop poop brown. Can we talk about Ben Garrison cartoons? As sure, well? we can. I don't know if it excites or bores you. I didn't want to bore you, but absolutely. I, I'm very amused by his cartoon because they're all nuts. It's like, I, they, they don't make sense in this world. This is like, I'm just fascinated. And this is like- Is there a favorite cartoon you want to share with us? Good question. One of my favorite, like, accidentally socialist cartoons, I don't know if Ben Garrison drew that, but there was one that like that tried to make Bernie look bad with feel the burn, and then it made him look just badass. That's the thing that I'm fascinated with is that his like specific pathologies are just dripping out of every cartoon, and also because he has some chops. Like that's the other thing is like yeah. most of these people like are pretty shitty artists, but like him and and also John McNaughton, that painter who like, and they both make Trump so hot. But I think, I don't know, because like there's technique there and also because every single one is like a, like a veritable garden of earthly delights, like he spends time on these things. And so just to like pour over them, like a, you know what? It, it's kind of like a chicken fat Will Elder situation, but for like a horrible person. Maybe that's why I'm fascinated is like, I think he loves the medium. I think he loves the medium and it's interesting to see somebody love the medium and like use some of the tools well and make such abhorrent like ideas come to life. Yeah. Also, in addition to the chicken fat stuff, I think um, you can feel the energy. I mean, as a draftsman, I think he is talented and uh, the content is psychotic and the, the style sort of mimics that. I don't know, like sometimes the colors, it's a little bit airbrushy style for me, but the actual line work and, and also, I mean, a lot of times the colors as well, it just, it has this unhinged quality to it, which mimics the content. And so I think it can be captivating, especially given the deranged nature of the content. Do you have a favorite cartoon you want to discuss? Like, I, for me, what's popping up is the crazy campus one that I... Uh, oh, yeah, with the crybabies? Yeah, maybe. It's like, has all, it's just all over the place. In, uh, and... and- I can't think of one offhand. Obviously, his Soros puppet master ones are, are you know, classic uh, okay. of the genre. This is the one that's like really just like insane. Um, it has like a, it's like a campus field, and I don't get it. Like it's just like there's everything there. I suspect that you you might be thinking about this parody of it that Current Affairs ran. Wait, is oh, this the oh, yeah, real yeah. one or the parody of it? Oh no, this is the real one. I'm sorry. I, I totally, because because uh, other people did, but no, no, this is- It's like oh. it has everything, like there's too much going on and uh, I just can't even- Oh, I thought you were talking about the one where um, they have like the football players are, so he does a lot with football players, so. But I think it was like post Redskins, I'm not sure though. Oh, so a recent one. No, no, I, I think it was re-upped in the Redskins name change recently, but I think it was a couple years old maybe, but I'm not sure. He, I love when he draws himself in, and he and he gave himself a catchphrase. Okay, in this cartoon, where is who is he? So he is the redhead goatee person, and sometimes he shows up in his own work, and he says, "Not an argument." Which I I, I thought that was Stephen Molyneux. Yeah, I thought that was. um, Is that the guy? Or yeah. Yeah. um, Does that guy have that catchphrase? 
Yeah, I, yeah. Stefan Molyneux keeps like saying, like he's like, he has a cult. It's not even like a right wing talk show. He tells everyone in the cult to like abandon their family, like, even if they disagree about like their pants. Or so let's say somebody called him up and said, my mom called my pants ugly. And it's like, okay, you have to break all relationship with your family. Oh. And he, oh, yeah, his, his favorite thing is not an argument, but then he goes off. It's I really thought that, that was, oh man, I really, I want to go back to believing that that was Ben Garrison inserting himself <laughs> into the world. Maybe that's just because, so Ward Sutton is this, uh, he does these cartoons for The Onion under a suit. Oh, Robert says Defu, which means cut off from family of origin. Fu is family of origin. And Defu means to remove yourself from your family of origin. Jeez. So Ward Sutton in The Onion is this cartoonist named Stan Kelly. And I think that he does a brilliant job of like doing an impersonation of a political cartoonist. But he always inserts this Stan Kelly character into the bottom corner of the cartoons, getting the last word in this Angry. like- yeah. Yeah. Oh, and also the Statue of Liberty is crying in every cartoon. Um, yeah, it's great. It's yeah. really great. They're incredible. <laughs> yeah, this Garrison cartoon. Wow. It's all yeah. over the place. Like it just overwhelms me. It's weird. He's he's kind of um he's the Q guy, right? It's it's fun following some of like the infighting with like some of the Nazis because like he's like a very isolationist Q guy right so every once in a while he'll make Ben a Garrison's a QAnon guy yeah okay. yes yes yeah I did not know that yeah, yeah and increasingly so I guess though I have this discomfort with is um making work that sort of just runs parallel to a thing a ridiculous thing that Trump says or does because <sighs> I, I feel that there is this ecosystem that rewards everybody whereby like, and you know, like I'm thinking about SNL cold opens, but I'm thinking about a ton of things also where it kind of just verbatim synopsizes the thing. And then everybody's like, oh my God, you did the thing that already happened. And it's this like, you're just hold up a mirror with like no critique, like like no point of view in there at all, but like- Orange um, yeah, yeah, he's rude. He's super rude. Um, I mean, I just remember people talking about, you know, telling us how like jokes were gonna get so good and art was gonna get so good and satire was gonna get so good. But when people are so beyond the pale, like Ellie, I'm sure that you can speak to this better than me because your cartoons keep coming true. But like to be a cartoonist right now and to like wake up and, and go, I, I don't know, just like to just like draw the thing that happened or the thing that was said feels a little irresponsible to me. Yeah, I'm, I was a little confused when you mentioned SNL. Are, are you referring to comics, like specific comics or cartoonists that are just like throwing back at us what, what is happening or? Yeah. You mean, you mean yeah. the cartooning medium specifically? Yeah. Right? Not just, yeah. okay. Yeah, so I was thinking about SNL because their cold opens are often Not just- funny. Definitely not funny, but they're also like, the Michael Cohen trial, and it's just lines from it, but with Kate McKinnon saying them, and so, right. like, and and so I I think that there's really an equivalent, um, and it's a thing that like, and I don't know, like Trump like is so buffoonish, right, and 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 cartoonish, which is obviously like, like that's not the problem, like he's a a genocidal Nazi, like that's the problem, and like when when you draw him we see that and like i think ed steed is also a cartoonist who does a great job of like drawing him in a way where like you see like that disgusting quality but there's just there's so much work that's just like kind of the thing that happened and i don't want to like throw stones here because i think that this is a uniquely difficult set of people to try and lampoon because they are so buffoonish but i do feel like that is something that's always in the back of my mind which is like i don't want to well, just what is that you cannot like if you have no politics of your own if you're not critiquing capitalism or corporations the environment like actual issues then you become one of those hollow people who can't critique trump because you don't have any politics of your own and i think trump sorts the people who are capable of doing a good critique and a satire about him because they have an ideology inside like there's a political ideology they follow as opposed to being just hollow well, I'd go further also and say that the people who sort of capitulate to this, like, it's 
be ridiculous thing also are benefiting finance. Like SNL is doing amazing. Uh, you know, Trump was on the show, but then now they like sort of make fun of him. Like I, I'll put it in scare quotes, but like people love it. People share it. Like, yeah, that's exactly what it is. It feels like a symbiotic relationship and it feels like a financially beneficial symbiotic. Yeah, Jeff Zucker, um, you know, for CNN, I think he wants mentioned that they pulled in a billion dollars or I don't know if that was like, I don't know how that was calculated, but I mean, and Trump goes off on CNN as, you know, uh, fake news and in the New York times as well. It's like, it's symbiotic for, for, I mean, especially with the New York times with the palace intrigue, obviously they do a lot of good stuff in terms of the reporting as well, but the palace intrigue stuff is sort of like a soap opera that uh, Trump relishes and feeds off. And his whole performance against the New York times is all part of the symbiosis. So everyone's doing well, except for actual Americans who are outside of that elite. For me, like what really drives me nuts is when Trump calls CNN or New York Times fake news and everyone's like, oh my God, I can't believe you did it. And then it's like, have you considered not peddling fake news? Like in New York Times, every article about either Venezuela, Iran, North Korea um, is just like filled with lies. And CNN, I mean, so... Yeah, I mean, it sucks that Trump is the messenger and that the things he says are fake news are almost always true. So, And yeah, also, he's true. probably the source for so much of the stuff that he says, why don't you reveal the leaker? He's probably the leaker of half of those things. Exactly. That's what it sucks. And then so all these liberals are not... During the primaries, it just pissed me off. Like, apparently in the hardcore idiot liberal circles, the American news media had like a 76% trust rate and it's like what's wrong with you people have you forgotten iraq syria libya like have they ever told the truth yeah and you know for what it's worth that also i think is part of my fascination with ben garrison whose work i think reflects a larger swath of people's actual point of view which is terrifying but like the new york times would have you believe that like brett stevens and like barry weiss are like conservative boy like that what is the difference between Brett Stevens and Barry White? Like, I can't tell. Like, they seem to have... Is there a difference? No. I, I, I don't know. I They're a tag know. team. Okay. Yeah. One of them self-expelled. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I guess it's just, like, political cartoons. Also, I think, like, there's such a large swath of political cartoons that feel to me to be, like, very anemic, sort of, like, jousting like superstructure jousting of like it's either like it's either slightly like it, they're 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 partisan but the broad consensus informing political cartoons is like america a good place that we love and like mm-hmm. statue of liberty cries and like the flag mm-hmm. and tears and we remember and the fourth of july etc etc you know like there's a broad consensus about that um, and so even though Ben Garrison is like, you know, like the work is loathsome, I'm interested because like there really actually is a point of view. Thank you so much for coming to this interview and let people know how to find you. The vast majority of my work is self-published on Twitter and Instagram. So my name uh, at Twitter or Instagram is how to find me basically. And also my Patreon, Patreon okay. slash my name as well. Where can people find you and what's next for you? So. What's next for me is I have a book out. I have a book that just came out called Everything is an Emergency. And it's about having obsessive compulsive disorder. So I made comics about that. And you can find that at your local bookstore, hopefully. And yeah, bookshop.org seems pretty cool. Like any way that you can support independent bookstores is great. I have an Instagram, which is at J period, A period, K period, underscore. And I have a Twitter. That's at Jason Adam K. And I'm too much online on both of these places. And who knows what's next for me? I'm trying to just like keep making cartoons. And oh, I have some stuff in the new issue of Current Affairs. I love working for Current Affairs. Well, what do you have in Current Affairs coming up? Oh, they have a print edition too, right? They have a print edition that's coming out. And I'm sure that the next time, if there's ever another debate, if, if Biden and Trump debate. God forbid. Uh, I mean, I, I want to see that. I do want to, I'm interested in what happens in a, like a really morbid way, but. but Trump's going to be like, oh, uh, fake news, blah, some incoherent stuff. And then Biden's like, this is unacceptable. Last week when I was speaking to Margaret Thatcher. Uh, 
it's it's yeah i mean it's gonna be like a like a surrealist film like like i i wonder what twists and turns a conversation between these two men will be like but i think that the thing that we can be sure of is that it will be about the 1980s and thanks for coming so we really appreciate it oh thank you thank you have a good rest of the afternoon and thank you so much and thank you so much okay bye bye music for this show is done by rectech you can find him on soundcloud and on spotify w-r-e C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.